0: When I say prostitute, you think, what? And where did you get that idea?
1: Love that's fresh and still unsported.
0: Certainly one place was cinema. I screened John Ford's stagecoach in my Intro to Film course at John Jay College. And Daisy is the town whore, kicked out by the upstanding women. On the road, she meets and falls in love with the outlaw Ringo, played by John Wayne first movie. The viewer feels bad for Daisy and hopes that she'll give up her nasty work and get together with Ringo. You know, the normal story. It's all quite nice. The prostitute becomes respectable.
1: Love that's only slightly sore. Love for sale.
0: The reality of sex work is more complicated than the movies. And yet for most of us, sex for money is simply bad. We see sex trade, diseased women giving their diseases to men. We imagine the horrors of brothel life and male control of the female body. For this BCR podcast and the next one, Rebecca and I will talk about this contested topic of sex work.
2: I'm going to be honest. When Alan brought this topic up, I wasn't sure. I probably have some deep-seated, um, unconscious, or maybe right under the consciousness ideas that it's not—it's not—it's bad to be a prostitute. I wouldn't want to be one. I wouldn't want my child to be one, my daughter to be one, or my son. It's—it's um, it's like from my childhood, you know, it's icky. And on my conscious side, I think that, that women should be protected. They should, be, they should have their rights, their freedoms, and they should not be victimized and by, their, by their johns or by the police. Um, so there you go. But whatever those feelings are, we have with us today a smart, knowledgeable scholar whose recently published book, Policing Bodies, details her ethnographic study of the interaction of sex workers, the police, and the justice system of Johannesburg, South Africa. What India Tusi learned in South Africa may help us think more deeply about our own American attitudes on sex work.
0: And we are out here on a very noisy porch at Gebhard's Beer Culture Bar. It's getting really warm.
2: On a hot New York day. Hot New York day. 93 we, degrees. Well, we say. have
0: the air conditioner blowing on us, though the window window's open, so it's the American way. Open the window and turn on the air conditioner. We're across the street from the mortuary and down the block from the Natural History Museum where the new Richard Gilder Center for Science, Education, and Innovation will open soon. So with that bit of an introduction, here we go. And we welcome Professor India Tusi to Bar Radio. She teaches in Bloomington at the Indiana University Maurer School of Law and at the Kinsey Institute. India has worked with the ACLU, Human Rights Watch, the Center for Constitutional Rights, and the Opportunity Agenda. Early in her career, India clerked for the South African Constitutional Court and was curious about the rough neighborhood down the block from the court. Her two-year study of the interaction of Johannesburg police and that city's sex workers began in May 2013. And we want to welcome India Tusi to Bar Crow Radio.
1: Thank you, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation.
0: We um, wanted to start with asking you what inspired you to take up this study of sex work in this very crowded area of Johannesburg, as I understood. Had you always been interested in, in, in this uh, topic?
1: No. um, Actually, I was interested in policing and I was interested in issues around criminalization of different forms of conduct, but not specifically interested in sex work. Um, So I knew I wanted to do research on policing. I was long interested in policing given some of my personal encounters with police and just the encounters with other people that I knew. And where, um, where
0: were these personal encounters? Were they here in the States?
1: In the States, in, in New York. So yeah. I actually grew up in New York. I grew up in Yonkers and, you know, went to high school, a public high school in Yonkers and just saw how, you know, a lot of my peers um, would disappear as the years went through to the criminal system. Right. And so I wanted to focus on In that. case no
0: one knows... Uh, India is a young black woman. Yeah. Uh, Very with pink hair. Yes.
1: <laughs> beautiful young black woman. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And so I, I had experienced discriminatory policing. Wanted to focus on research that deals with policing, and um, I had some experience in South Africa and was interested in how it compared with the U.S. It had a history of racial apartheid, a history of white supremacy. But at the same time, there was this embrace of human rights um, that, you know, was A real really weird different. mix. Yes. Right. And
0: you were working there in South Africa. Yes, yes. At one was, of the high courts.
1: Yes, yes. I was working at the Constitutional Court in South Africa. So it's their highest court, um, really charged with embracing human rights. And um, as I was doing research and, you know, what area of policing I wanted to focus on, um, there were these news reports about police targeting sex workers and some of the um tensions that existed there and i wasn't finding much um research at least not much academic research that focused on the policing of sex work and so i I wanted to kind of look into
0: that right you you write at the beginning of the book that you uh wanted to get something to eat for lunch yeah and you went into this part of the neighborhood which is right next to the court yes. which no one in the court was going to yes and you found this great place to have lunch and yeah, that, that kind of maybe was the beginning of the inspiration to do this.
1: Yes, yes. There was this neighborhood called the Brown neighborhood in Johannesburg, and it's right there next to the courthouse, which is supposed to be the symbol of human rights and this new constitutional regime. Yet so many people hadn't actually entered the neighborhood right adjacent to this great symbol, and so I went in there, and it has this reputation of vice and you know just illegality and crime occurring. And I wanted to see you know what what it what was actually there and. I found a vibrant neighborhood that was a lot more complicated than um, its reputation would suge- suggest. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
2: Amazing. So, yours was a 20-month ethnographic study of how the law has lived in these, Johanna- these, these are Johannesburg neighborhoods. Yeah. What is an ethnographic study?
1: Yes. So, um, it's a methodology that you often see from anthropologists, but also um, so sociologists and other disciplines um, would also use this um, way of doing research. And ethnographic research really requires that you fully immerse yourself into um, the area, culture, um, institution that you're going to be examining. So it includes participant observation often. So you might just spend you know endless amount of time with a particular um, you know research subject and have experienced with their day-to-day life. So it's not just, you know, once off interviews, but it's actually spending time with people and it's often over a long period of time.
2: So did they know they were being interviewed or did you just have conversations with people? Yes, absolutely. So everyone gives informed
1: consent. They were informed about, you know, I was doing research on the policing of sex work. Um they knew the parameters of the study and there were formal interviews that I did during the course of the study. But I also was just there at the police station. I was often just there during under normal police patrols. So there was a lot I observed that wasn't specific just to the policing of sex work, but it was helpful for me to understand it within a relevant context. So you did the interviews at the police
2: station? Yes, did yes. Did you go into the neighborhoods as well? Um, so I
1: did interviews with both police officers as well as with sex workers. So with the sex workers, I did interviews in their working environments. So that could be inside of brothels or in the streets where they were working. And with the police officers, when I interviewed them, um, the st- structured interviews were at the police stations. But we also have informal conversations, informal interviews that would be you know wherever they were working.
2: Why approach the policing of sex and work in this way? Well, I think the
1: benefit of ethnography is it allows you to see how it changes over time. So if someone does a survey um, research uh, on a particular issue, they're really just observing what's happening in that moment, right? And so with an ethnography, you can see the changes that shift, that people's attitudes change, that are not static, that there might be different forms of sex work, right? And so what I observed in one of my locations you know, at one moment, it seemed like sex work was a particular way where police were um, not really enforcing uh, the the laws around prostitution. But over time, that changed, and they took a different approach where they were criminalizing the conduct of the clients. And so if you just do a survey at one moment, you may think that you have a clear picture of what the policing of sex work is, but you miss out on how just a few months later it really dramatically shifts and that there is this constant, um, you know, change and transitions that are occurring especially when you're dealing with something that could be so um invisible in some ways right right and
0: it it seems like over a period of time also your relationships are going to change with these people um in, in a sense that they are going to trust you more they're going to feel more comfortable with you they're going to be more. They're going to reveal their behavior in a more realistic way.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. You build trust. You build um, more lasting relationships. They feel more comfortable. And often, there's a disconnect between what people say and what they do. So you you're observing not just what they say in a formal interview or what they fill out in a survey. You're actually observing their behaviors and what they're doing
2: in the moment. So you spent time with both the prostitutes and the police who arrested and protected them, and at times with and their clients as well. Um, you write that the brothel workers were suspicious and mistrusting of, of strangers. I imagine the police might not be forthcoming for other reasons. Um, how were you able to get these two very different groups of people to talk to you? I started off with the police and they were really hesitant when they first met me.
1: They, they told me that I wouldn't find anything and that, you know, this was dangerous work that they were doing. And it was more kind of, you know, trying to, you know, keep me safe and a bit patronizing at times. But I think just over time, you know, pe- it's only so long that you can keep your guard up, right? And so, just within the span of a few weeks, um, I was able to develop some relationships. They saw me there all the time. They got to know me. Um, you know, I joined them in the ride-alongs, and, and you know, soon we just developed, um, you know, friendships really. And so, you know, the, I guess that kind of illustrates the benefits of doing ethnographic research because, you know, police are notorious for having this, you know, blue wall of silence and um, really protecting themselves and not really speaking to, to outsiders. And I think ethnography allows you to, to crack that zone.
0: Were, were the police, because you had an experience with police in the United States, were the police similar in Johannesburg? Or is, I mean, it's people. a different culture
1: it's a different culture but there are a lot of similarities and i think it's interesting because you know of course south african police are part of south african culture but they're also part of police culture um largely and i think there is this separate cultural identity about being an officer that um is distinct from um you know just one's national identity and i think you see a lot of um you know continuities amongst you know between different cultures in terms of how police culture um you know is presented and how, how and it manifests. Peop-
2: and people on the outside can't possibly understand yes. what it's like for them. Yeah. Yes. Did you did you wear certain clothing? Yes.
1: Yes. You know, with the with the police what what I found is, you know, I had to be mindful of the fact that, you know, I was this young black woman and, you know, creating sufficient kind of barriers between myself and the officers make sure that, you know, I'm just there as a researcher. Most of the researchers they had encountered were the older white men who were doing a lot of the policing scholarship in South Africa. So they they weren't able to place me, which is, I think in the African context, is really important. People want to know your family history. They want to be able to place you exactly where you're coming from, right? And if you don't fully make sense to them with what their expectations are, you really have to explain yourself. And so with the officers, I was, you know, really trying to maintain this professional identity and make it clear that I'm not a potential romantic partner either because we're going into these environments, these highly sexualized environments, and it was important to kind of maintain some distance as well. And so, you know, just being mindful of, you know, what I was wearing um, and, you know, being, you know, professional, but at the same time um, being myself too. Sure,
2: sure. Did you speak in a certain way?
1: Um, I, I, I think... the you know I think the way that I spoke is the same as I always spoke but there were certain words I would use a different vocabulary depending on who I was speaking with and so you know with the police I just said Prostitutes or working ladies. So I use the vocabulary that they use, and then the times I would use sex workers, it was a distraction, and you know, it, it, it kind of caught them off guard, and you know, interrupted the conversation. And then with sex workers, I would use you know, sex workers or you know, working ladies, and use the terms that they use. Um, and I think there are a few terms like that where I was just mindful of using the right vocabulary because if you don't, it could just distract people or make them mistrust you or just place you in a particular way, right? That you must be coming from this and and from that angle as opposed to, you know, just sharing openly with you. Sure,
2: yeah. What about behaving differently? Did you behave differently when you were?
1: Um, You know, with... I, I don't think I... I think with both groups, it was about trying to build a relationship and connection. And so, you know, with the officers, it just... I think with both groups, you know, just being a good listener and, you know, the, the behaviors were, you know, similar. I think maybe with sex workers... Um, because it was a more social environment usually then there was more socializing and so I would have a drink when I was you know in a space where people are having a drink right you know and that wouldn't happen you know with a police shift usually right and so you know there were certain behaviors um, that were a little bit different but it was specific to the environment I was in not the the people I was speaking with
0: now what one of the techniques you used in order to get connect in order to get to contact with the sex workers was you had a, a woman named Emily, which you write about, which helped you. Who was Emily and how did she help you?
1: Emily was a, a sex worker for at one of the brothels um, in Johannesburg. Um, she had been, I guess, in and out of sex work. She had worked as a domestic worker as well. I think when I first met her, she was a domestic worker, but she was going back to the brothel. And I met her through a, a mutual uh, friend um, and who had already been familiar with some of the brothels there, and who was also doing um, research. And she ended up being, uh, you know, a key informant for me. Someone who connected me with um, various sex workers. Someone who would actually go with me to the different brothels that way, and you know, help me in terms of having conversations with people and just being familiar with the environments. And so, um, she, she, she was you wonderful. Know, so hold. she had a
0: family. She had children. Did she?
1: Yes. She, yes, she had. Uh, I think two or three children, so she did have a family. Um, she does have a family, and she also had extended family she was supporting. So um, through, her through the sex work, through the sex work, right? And so that, that that was the thing. The reason she always went back to sex work was because you know her work as a domestic worker didn't allow her to support everyone. Um, she was only you know able to barely support herself with that salary, and with the sex work she was able to support her children, to support her siblings and you know, really be a breadwinner for her family.
0: Right, 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 I do want to talk more about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you write about witnessing police violence against these women, but I remember, right, there was one incident involved uh, handcuffs. Mm-hmm. you remember that one? Maybe you can tell us what happened there.
1: Yeah, um, so there was one instance where I went to a police station um, to join the officers, so I'd often join them on their patrols to the different areas they go to, often in sex work, hotspots. But you know, one of the things about ethnography, you observe things that are beyond your research subjects. And so one time they had arrested someone, it wasn't connected to sex work, um, but they arrested someone and they were using the handcuffs to kind of cut off his circulation. And so I was waiting for um, you know, my patrol partner for the evening and I saw them as they were just, you know, squeezing this person's handcuff as and he was just, you know, screaming in the police station and you know it was it was just it was crazy it was torture and you know the the person was screaming so loudly and the officers were yelling back you know stop the screaming and we're pushing in another room and they ended up dragging him to another room but it was just so routine it was just ordinary it was not extraordinary at all and it just struck me that you know this is just something that occurs so often and they no longer saw me as being a threat so they didn't even you know no one batted an eye when they said that this was occurring in front of someone who might be an outsider it, it just occurred in front of me and you know i obviously that puts me in a really difficult situation because on the one hand i have this access because you know there's this understanding as a researcher that i'm not there to report them or to serve as an advocate but you know it that that pulled me
0: that, that that raises the whole question of boundaries And being a witness and seeing things untoward that, you know, maybe under other circumstances you go say, hey, what's going on? You better stop that. And here you can't. Um, There must be very conflicting kinds of feelings going on for the ethnographer.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because on the one hand, you wouldn't be there if there was a possibility of, you know, you reporting them or them feeling like, you know, you could be there to, um, you know, report their misdeeds. Uh, on the other hand you know you're there as a human being like that doesn't go away and you know for me i was an advocate and so you know at least prior to doing this research and so you know it was really difficult but thankfully i had um, supervisors and you know other mentors that i can go to and you know kind of talk through these situations and get advice and you know, learn different best practices and ways that people cope with us.
0: So you would always go to your advisor and say, if you're having a problem with something, and then they would talk you through it.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Right,
0: right. Um, sometimes the boundaries were um, overreached, and you almost got arrested once, you write about it, in um, policing bodies. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yes. Um, so, you know, there was one evening where um, some sex workers had been detained by police officers near where I lived. I lived in an area where there was um, sex work occurring. And I got a phone call in the middle of the night. And it was around, I think, maybe 2 a.m. or something like that. And I, I went out there. And, you know, I guess that's the first boundary that was broken because it had become to this point where, you know, I was getting these phone calls at all hours of the night. People were looking at me as researcher, but friends and, you know, contact me whenever they were in these difficult situations which was difficult for me and at the same time I was also doing research with the police too so it was really difficult and so they contacted me I go to the location and you are on a scooter and I'm on a scooter Right? I hop on my scooter um, go around the block to where they were um, I enter into the location it was this parking lot And, you know, I parked my scooter and I asked the officer, okay, um, you know, I received a phone call. I'm doing research on the police and the sex work. And, you know, they said they were trying to leave and I just, you know, want to know what's going on because I'm doing research in this area. And the officer said, they're not arrested. I said, okay, are they free to leave? He said, no. I said, okay. all right, <laughs> you know, if you usually, if you're not free to go, that means you're, you're arrested. Um, and I said, okay. And, you know, I spoke to a, a couple of people there and they told me that, you know, they, they couldn't make money. They, this was really difficult for them. Um, they just want to go home. They can't go home. And they've been there for, you know, some time now, I think a couple hours by that point. And so I spoke to them and then, you know, I wanted to leave and I was told that I could not leave. Wow.
2: Yeah. So how did it end? Well,
1: uh, you know, I called one of my uh, advisors while I was there. I said, I think I'm going to get arrested, <laughs> or I think I am arrested. I, I don't know what to do. I, I'm stuck. They won't let me go. Um, you know, because it was a parking lot, it, you know, it was gated all around. And so it was this secured space where they, they had all of us and you know i tried to you know walk off at one moment and the officer said that they were going to put me in handcuffs no one was handcuffed at this point they were no, put me no in you weren't
0: charged with anything
1: not charged with anything no one was told what was going on and um wasn't charged with anything um yeah. was just Sounds pretty detained. scary yeah 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 and so you know i went eventually when you know people were looking the other way i, I managed to kind of um, escape, <laughs> honestly, just kind of find my way out. But you know, it was it was difficult, and it, it showed me, you know, just some of those boundaries. I mean, there were some risks in terms of going there. I felt comfortable because it was so close to where I lived, and I was so familiar with the area. But uh, obviously, there were some risks with going. And then, you know, the, these officers didn't kind of respect, you know, that you know some some of the normal boundaries there. They had their own sort of agenda, and you know, we're acting unlawfully.
0: Were these officers that you knew, and did you meet up with them later? No, no. they were
1: not officers. They were, they were officers from outside of that area that were coming right. in and, and you know, you, being you exploiter. do mention there's
0: two different police forces there. Yes. One you were able to work with and one you couldn't.
1: Yes, absolutely. that's exactly right. I mean, the other one, so this was Metro Police. Metro Police, this wouldn't really be under their jurisdiction at all. Um, so they, it wasn't really appropriate for them to be there to begin
2: with. This is Bar Crawl Radio, and we're talking with lawyer, professor, and ethnographic researcher India Thusi about her new book, Policing Bodies, Law, Sex Work, and Desire in Johannesburg. And we'll be right back. So let's, let's look at um, who these women are and the sort of work they do. What is sex work? Um, You're right, there were 25 types? Yes, yes.
1: I mean, one researcher, one scholar has identified, um, you know, 25 types of um, sex work, so meaning in terms of the locations where it's occurring and the the nature of the work. And so it can be like street-based, I think, is what a lot of times comes to people's minds, where people are openly soliciting on the streets. There could be hotel-based, brothel-based. What I saw was a mix of hotels and brothels. Um, You know, these days we're seeing more and more different forms um, that are occurring online. Um, There could be escorts. I mean, there's just a range of, you know, kind of relationships and interactions that could fall within this umbrella of, you know, sex work. But the ways that I was defining it for the study was, you know, you know, there was paid um, sexual activity, you know, right? So there was some sort of transaction in exchange for sexual activity. And the forms that I observed were the street based sex work that people often think about, but also um, the hotel, a mix of that hotel brothel base where the you know, sex workers were operating as independent contractors at a location that was known for sex work and then paying the, the hotel for um, rents. Uh, For each room.
0: Right, right. And there were different levels of brothels too. Yes. Right? Yes, yes. Some with the beautiful women and some with the not so beautiful, yeah? Yeah, there was a hierarchy. Put quotes around beautiful.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, there was a hierarchy. And what was interesting to me was that the police knew the hierarchy, right? The sex workers themselves also knew the hierarchy, right? It was internalized on in the sense that, you know, there was a high-end brothel that, you know, had a certain, you know, type of um, sex worker and then there were low-end brothels. And you know, people ha- show different levels of respect and admiration based off, uh, you know, where someone worked. Wow. Wow. Is this work dangerous? Um, you know, it, ca- it can be, it can be, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, their there risk involved with sex work, I mean, I think some of the risks come from, you know, the officers themselves, you know, so I mentioned the situation earlier where, you know, these officers who don't belong in this location are detaining people and, you know, trying to exploit... Um, their vulnerability, Um, there can be, you know, dangerous situations that come from some clients so where sex workers aren't able to really properly screen their clients and so that's what happened during a moment where the officers decided to target sex work. Well, what ended up happening, it pushed it underground, and sex workers weren't able to communicate with each other and say, hey, don't go into that car, or you know, "You don't have to operate in such a harried way, right? People were just going wherever they were going, and they weren't able to communicate with each other, and so that brought a lot more you know, risk and vulnerability
2: to sex workers. So the thesis of your book is that women of all sorts should be able to pursue the options available to, excuse me, the options available to them that they deem to be beneficial, including sale of sex. Many would have problems with that statement, mm-hmm. um, myself a little bit included. I mm-hmm. have a hard time with the thought of um, the, I guess, the morality of sex working. Mm-hmm. So um, I feel mm-hmm. that they are on the, the bottom rung, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know. There's no one that's, I, I don't see anyone protecting them, you know, and it's hard for them to get rights that for themselves, it mm-hmm. seems. Mm -hmm. Um, And even when people try to protect them, they don't necessarily, or they try to regulate and they don't necessarily want to be regulated. And it's just, it's really confusing. Mm -hmm.
1: I think those are all valid concerns, right? Because, you know, with any sort of labor that could be exploitive, right? You want to ensure that people are protected, that they have rights, that they're not in these really vulnerable situations. And I think that's the case absolutely with, with sex workers. I think what... I find difficult with criminalizing any aspect of sex work is that there are harms that come from criminalization, and I think oftentimes people don't consider those harms, right? And so, with criminalization, you find that actually it often puts sex workers in even more vulnerable situations than in an environment where there's decriminalization. You know, I think one way of you know dealing with this and dealing with you know the, some of the harms that might come or be perhaps even inherent to sex work, is to work on building an environment, a world, where maybe someone does not need to make that choice, right? So as as opposed to you know, focusing on criminalizing and trying to get rid of it that way even though we know that criminalizing brings all these vulnerabilities it makes people in more dangerous situations not able to communicate you're stigmatizing them by saying that they're criminals but instead thinking about how do we support people where they're making the best choices for themselves what are the material conditions that we need in society that makes that so right and so people often don't think about that way think about it that way right and so that means thinking about things from an even higher level where you're thinking about you know, education you're thinking about you know what health care benefits you know a right to housing all these other sorts of things particularly in the US context these socio-economic rights that are often are not connected to the things that we criminalize
0: and yet regulating uh, sex work or regulating anything is based on our attitudes towards whatever it is that we're regulating yeah and I think if you look at people's attitudes about what a sex worker is, mm-hmm. prostitute, whore, mm-hmm. I mean, all those names that we apply to that, that um, it gets in the way of coming up with these humane ways of regulating. I wonder if you could read a piece from your uh, from your book, beginning of the book, that kind of defines how people look at the sex worker.
1: Sex work is difficult. It is messy. It triggers our emotions as citizens of the world concern participants in our local spaces as women, men, wives, husbands, mothers, fathers, daughters, and sons. It challenges much of what we have been taught about human relationships and frustrates many of our own notions of morality. It is not a neutral subject, and we all bring preconceived notions of what it is and how it looks to our debates about sex work.
0: Right. And one of those preconceived notions comes from um, the the radical feminist who you talk about uh, in which who wants to end this um, activity of sex work. They see the sex worker as a victim exploited by men who dominate the economy and justice system. Um, The uh, radical feminist uh, that you write about in the book uh, see that this activity needs to be criminalized so as to end it. Um, what are their arguments? I don't think you agree with those arguments. What are they?
1: Yeah. I mean, their arguments is that when you ha- allow a society to commercialize a woman's body, it's suggesting that female sexuality is something that can be bought and sold. And so they argue that you know by allowing any form of sex work, that in essence, you're creating a harm that affects all women that extends beyond the sex worker, and so you know that's why they favor criminalization or at least partial criminalization. Some favor full criminalization, some favor partial criminalization. I'm not sure that many people would favor you know decriminalization, but you know the I think dominant approach among uh, radical feminists is partial criminalization, criminalize the conduct of the client and decriminalize the conduct of the sex work.
0: Right. The, the, the other side, uh, who, the other sort of feminist, would argue uh, that sex work must be decriminalized or partially decriminalized, as, as you just put it, that the sex worker has agency and is not part of a totally exploitive system, that they, they know what they're doing. And you write in your book, quote, women have power and agency and can exert resistance to defy societal standards and norms. This power to resist lies even with women who are often deemed vulnerable, including sex workers, end quote. Uh, you seem to fall on that side of the argument, yes?
1: Yes, yes. I mean, even the most vulnerable sex workers that I interacted with, it, it, What what is interesting, you know, they weren't these one-dimensional victims. Like people, they knew how to exploit a situation. They knew how to benefit. from. From their sexuality, there were times where there was a performance that they were engaging in with their sex workers. You know, it, it, it's it's really a l- pretty messy and complicated. And I think you know the notion that all sex workers are just victims doesn't really c- capture the fact that a lot of sex workers have agency, even in even the most vulnerable um, of sex workers. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it is in a sense a performance that's being put on but I think both sides know it's a performance.
1: Yes, you know, it can be a performance. Now, what was interesting, even with that um, key participant we spoke about, Emily, when she went away from sex work, she missed the money. She also missed the intimacy. And people often assume that there can't be any real aspects of it, and it's a lot more complicated than that. If you have these long relations, these long interactions with someone that you see regularly, You know, even if someone's paying or there's this understanding that there's a material benefit to it doesn't mean that there aren't any emotional connections attached. And so one thing that she told me that she missed was having that regular sort of intimacy and those regular connections. Right. And she didn't know how to make sense of that. And I heard that from a few people. And so I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, I'm also a senior scientist with the Kinsey Institute. And so, you know, we've been doing research with live jasmine which is this website with um, online um, camera um, operators and sex workers and one thing that was really interesting that we found from this study was that people who are going for these online interactions these online sexual connections are in large part going there for emotional connection not just a physical release, and people often just think of it as just being this physical thing. But a lot of times, it's really about that emotional connection. So it's a lot more complicated in terms of what's happening there. And you know, when you factor that in, it's not so easy to say that you know it's just this universal harm about women and commercializing their bodies. It's like, there's a lot more going on.
0: You talked about Emily. Is there another person that is, does this kind of work that you met that you could tell us about? that kind of jumps to your mind as someone who was interesting, in particular, or someone you liked.
1: Yes, so there, there's another sex worker who I met with, and we'll say that her name is Suzanne. And she worked at one of the Flashier clubs, um, Summit Club in Johannesburg. And she worked out of a brothel. And so this was a you know high-end, well, higher-end um, brothel. And what was interesting was being able to compare her experience with Emily's experience and they were actually friends and so Emily started at Summit Club with Suzanne and um, Emily left because you know she was told that her weight was too high that she didn't fit into the standards of this club and it was just really or I, I don't know that she was actually she Didn't say she was told directly, but she just felt that way. Let me just put it that way. Like she made that determination that I'm not making enough money here and I don't think I fit in, right? And I think it was actually her friends who told her that maybe she doesn't fit into the standards of the club, not the club management. But Suzanne, you know, worked at Summit Club for some years and, you know, her her, like perspective on sex work was really quite like transactional right she had she didn't have any children Um, she had made like a pretty I guess established amount for herself like she had saved a lot of her money she had an exit plan for herself but she didn't fit into this narrative of this you know sex worker who was just a victim or who was like in a desperate situation um you know she was empowered in some ways um and she knew what she was you know kind of getting into and she wanted she had like a particular sum of money that she wanted that she was trying to work toward and it just reminded me of you know there were these officers i spoke to during that focus group where they described someone that was kind of like Suzanne. And they were expressing admiration for that. They were saying, wow, this person saved this amount of money, she now has her own business, you know, and she was able to do that. And the officers themselves said to me, I don't know why we criminalize it. Um, but we go, we arrest people, we do what we're supposed to do. Um, but I don't know why we
2: criminalize it." So at the end of your book, Policing Bodies, you look at the possibility of sex work as work as just another form of labor. You ask, is sex for work really so different from other types of body, labor, in exchange for income? So what did you mean by that? I mean that, you know, we
1: treat sex as something that is just naturally exceptional, but there are other forms of body labor that can be demanding, that can be difficult, that can put people in vulnerable situations that we don't treat as that. Right, and so I think a, uh, an example that some people bring up is like boxing, or you know, someone working in a coal mine. That's real body work, right? And you're exposing yourself to these fumes. You're inhaling. You're going into these dark spaces, and that's body work. But we accept that,
2: right? It's, um, it, it doesn't have a moral aspect to it, but it um, certainly they certainly are victimized.
0: Viking for coal does have a moral aspect to it. Because oh, right. it that's is true. polluting it the yeah. the yeah. environment. That's I true. mean, there's yeah. a political,
2: political aspect. Well, yeah. uh, I think yes. it's moral
0: too, because we're dealing with with um, climate change. Yeah. Yeah. yes, right. That's true. Right, but yet sex work is immoral.
1: I, I don't think it's different than the coal mining, right? If your primary concern is exploitation, I don't think it's different from even domestic work, where people can be in vulnerable situations. Even you know, in in other types of labor. I mean, we saw this during the Me Too movement, where We have high-paid, famous actresses exposed to really vulnerable situations despite that and, and, you know, possible exploitation, right? And at times, they're using their bodies. They're displaying their bodies, you know, and doing nude scenes at times in order to be compensated, right? But we treat this differently, and I I don't think that has to be the case. But
2: I wonder, I mean, I don't know that the laws that are created, that criminalize it, have to do with their vulnerability, be more with the morality question of selling their bodies. I wonder. It, it is kind of a moral law in a way, it feels.
1: It's a morality that has been defined that's not self-evident. And, you know, these laws are actually relatively recent things. We didn't initially have laws in the U.S. and in South Africa, too criminalizing prostitution. That's actually pretty recent during the progressive era is where you found um, criminalization of prostitution. It was also connected to immigration into the country and this idea that, you know, we need to to save white women from um, the potential of slavery because they were engaging in sex with black people, black Man, and so there was this fear that you know you have this racial intermingling and then at the same time we have the passage of the man act which resulted in you know federal criminalization of prosecution so i guess you know i'm providing this history to say that we may think of this as inherently immoral but it's actually been co- socially constructed as such and defined as such and that we don't necessarily need to see it as being so immoral that it needs to be criminalized
0: we're going to be following up on this conversation for our next B4 Barcore Radio uh, with Samantha Magic who is who's also studying it uh, but from a different perspective we want to thank you India Tusi for for joining us is there anything that you would like to say that we didn't cover
1: it's been a great conversation I will say that I'm actually starting a new research project in actually I leave for Sweden tomorrow looking at the policing of sex work in Sweden and so they have a different regulatory approach where they criminalize the client and decriminalize the sex workers. So I'm gonna be you know doing more work and writing more about it.
0: Right, this is your topic now.
1: This is my topic. All right. <laughs>
0: thank you very much indeed. All right, see. thank you. We will continue our conversation about sex work for our next BCR episode, in which we will be talking with Professor Samantha Magic of John Jay College's Department of Political Science and author of Sex Work Politics from protest to service provision. And with Zola Bruce, the Director of Communications at the Sex Worker Project of the Urban Justice Center. But for now, we want to thank India Thusi, author of Policing Bodies, Law, Sex Work, and Desire in Johannesburg, for helping us to gain deeper insights on the controversial and complex questions of the nature of sex as transactional labor.
2: We are Bar Crawl Radio, and we talk with interesting people who are passionate about the human condition in the 21st century, doing something for positive social change.
0: And one more note. For any researcher listening to this recording from the future, say 100, 200 years from May 2022, and sex work is no longer an issue, it's been settled. Please do not judge us unkindly. Remember that we were struggling in the dark to turn on the light that you are enjoying.